Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Looking for exceptional coffee delivered fresh to your door? We have the answer. Our friends at Grim Bean Coffee produce small batch artisan coffee using top tier coffee beans. The coffee is roasted when you order, guaranteeing the freshest coffee possible. Check out Breadbox Roasts, a new line of Catholic themed coffees available at www. Dot .grimbeancoffee.com forward slash redboxmedia. Experience coffee like never before. By definition, a storyteller conveys events and words, images and sounds, often by improvisation or embellishment. The Living Bread Radio Network presents The Storytellers with Tony Agnesi. Today, you'll hear a faith-based, inspirational story that's both heartfelt and heartwarming. And now, let's meet today's storyteller with Tony Agnesi. Hi, this is Tony Agnesi, and welcome to this edition of The Storytellers. Each week, we feature a guest with unique and inspiring stories to tell. Storytellers is brought to you in part by CatholicBook.net. And all of the books, including today's featured book on the program, are available at CatholicBook.net. The program can also be heard via podcast at TheStorytellersRadio.com, at my website, TonyAgnesi.com, and wherever you get your podcast, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and many, many more. And you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and MeWe at Tony Agnesi. I've got a great guest today. I've been looking forward to talking with Mike Aquilina. Mike is the author of over 50 books. He is the executive vice president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, a contributing editor to Angelus News. And the latest book uh, is uh, the beginning of a series of books, the first and the beginning of a series of books called The Church in the Roman Empire. And um, it's uh, Reclaiming Catholic History. Mike, it's great to have you with us. Hey, thanks for having me, Tony. Thanks for the invitation. I want to start right there, and that is that there just seems to be so much of Catholic history that is either history or mythology, and boy, I'll tell you what, it's difficult for the average Catholic to kind of sort that out. T- talk about that a little bit. Well, there are urban legends out there. We have to understand that that um, that we're an English-language people. You know, my, my, my folks came here to the United States from Sicily, um, but, but you know, we, we, they came to a place where the, the culture is English-speaking, and, uh, and the histories that were written in England were histories that were very much Protestant, and they were done in, in reaction uh, against the Catholic Church. And, and so we, we inherited a lot of the myths, what's called the black legend of, um, of, uh, of the, the English Protestant people. This is just what we were, what we learned in school. It became part of the history books, and it was accepted. Well, you know, as uh, as uh, the the universities and and the institutions in our culture have become less Christian, they don't care as much about the distinctions between Protestants and Catholic, and they're they're reexamining a lot of things in history. And as they reexamine these historical episodes, they they uh, they come to a clearer understanding of it, and all of that. Um, that new that new examination, the new study of history, is good for the Catholic Church because the truth comes out very often. At least, uh, 
at least sometimes anyway, the truth comes out and, uh, and, and, and we, we see it afresh and, uh, and we come to a clearer understanding of episodes in history, like, for example, the Crusades, the Inquisitions, and, uh, and, and various things that have been misunderstood and, um, and misconstrued and misrepresented in history books. Mm-hmm. Um, my period of interest is much older. It's the period of the early church, and, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be editing this series of books that, uh, that, that is, is focused on reclaiming Catholic history, recovering the truth in, in, in the history of these various periods, and, um, and, and telling the story, uh, you know, as it actually happened. I remember from my college days of history professors saying, uh, he who wins the war writes the history. Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, Paul Revere didn't really make the ride somebody else did. And Christopher Columbus, he came a long way after America was discovered. And we we tend to uh, have taught in the schools uh, these things as historical events that really actually either happened in a different way or didn't happen at all. And when you go back, you know, when we're going back 2,000 years, um, it seems to me that there'd be an awful lot of chance for um, these uh, mythology to take the place of the actual historic events. And so sorting through them has got to be a challenge. I mean, uh, uh, where do you even begin? <laughs> well, you, you know, it's, uh, something you said is very interesting. You know, you said, um, quoting your, your professors, he who wins the war writes the history. Um, and that's true in most cases. So we don't get the straight story, for example, um, about Egypt's history because we only hear the pharaoh's side of it. And we only hear about it when they were victorious. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting about the Bible is that so often... The stories are told by history's losers. You know, <laughs> Israel was was you know depicts itself in its histories as as um, sinful, as uh, as doing stupid, rebellious things, as being exiled, uh, conquered, cast out, and uh, and then you know uh, just permitted to go back and build their temple with help from outside. It's not a flattering history. We get to the New Testament, and we have the story of these 12 apostles, and none of them come off looking very good. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're cowardly, they're impetuous, they, 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 they're, you know, they're full of all these weaknesses. So the good thing about Christian history, when it's done right, is that it's okay for you to tell the story of your weaknesses and the things you did wrong. It's okay to admit these things. And Catholic history is that way. When we go back and we tell our stories, even when we tell of the lives of the saints, we're telling about the lives of the sinners, because every saint is a sinner as well. We're all sinners. And uh, and the good thing about the saints is that they were repentant sinners. Uh, They were they were sinners who wanted to be perfected, even in this life, by the grace of God. So, um, so, so there's there's a, a, a kind of a rich field out there for people who want to do history by Catholic principles, mm-hmm. because you don't have to be afraid of the truth. You don't have to be afraid of the defeats. You don't have to be afraid of the failures of Christians, because we have a way of understanding those because it, it, you know we we believe that god god allows them in his providence 
That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Well, whenever you get into a discussion, and usually with my Protestant friends, they always bring up the persecutions of the Crusades. And, man, I've heard this thing inflated a million different ways. Uh, how do we cut through some of that and get to what really happened? Well, one way is by, by going to the sources, and there are so many good sources right now. Um, of if you, if you want to do the heavy lifting, there's good sources in academic history. Um, so many of the great uh, histories of the Reformation that were written for the 500th anniversary of, of, the, of, the, of, of, of Luther's Reformation, uh, really tell, those, those histories really tell the story well. And, uh, and, and uh, they... they they, uh, they 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 tell it so that Catholics come off looking pretty pretty well too, mm-hmm. even when they're not written by Catholics. Um, so there is a certain openness today, and there are good histories that are out there. Um, if you want to do the heavy lifting, go ahead and do that. Um, but there are a lot of other a lot of other popular histories that are coming out too that 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 help us to to understand the story, understand what really happened, so that we can get the facts out there. Uh, there are great sources online, uh, Catholic which is the, the website of Catholic Answers, really uh, makes an effort to, to understand uh, the, the urban legends and myths about, about Catholics that are told in history classes and, and offer good history uh, as a remedy for that. So we have a lot of good resources at our disposal. We're just, uh, we just need to make, make use of them. You just have to do the heavy lifting. Reclaiming Catholic history is what we're talking about with our guest, Mike Aquilini, the author of a new book at the beginning of a series of books um, uh, called The Church and the Roman Empire. Mike serves as both author and editor of this series. His first book uh, goes from 301 to 490. We always seem to link the church in the Roman Empire, and uh, obviously the Roman Empire at one point failed. Um, how did how did what happened as a result of that? You know, the, the, did uh, Christianity kind of hung in there? Absolutely. Well, you know, we 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 had a, a conflicted relationship with the Roman Empire, of course, and and my book begins in a, in the time of persecution. Uh, Rome persecuted Christianity, uh, sometimes very severely, uh, for for more than two centuries, almost three centuries, and it's only with the the rise of Constantine the Great in the early fourth century that Christianity became legal. Uh, in in um, in the years that followed Constantine. Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and um, and and then Rome fell, as you point out. Well, what happened then? What we find is that um, is that when Rome fell, Christianity was able to provide the cultural support that Europe needed in that time in order to survive um, survive the uh, um, the collapse of the infrastructure. Uh, the, um, the the difficulties that came in the wake of that, which were which were economic, which were uh, which were threats to peace, uh, all kinds of problems that that came came about as a result of the decline of the Roman Empire. Um, so so yeah, Christianity was the force that kept things going in Europe uh, in the time of what we now call the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Did was was Christianity forced upon the uh, the people? You know, that's a myth uh, about Constantine. Uh, Constantine the Great, though, did legalize Christianity, but what he did was legalize freedom of conscience. 
he, he was he was fair. He he wanted pagans to be able to practice their religion freely. He wanted Christians to be able to practice their religion freely, and Jews to be able to practice their religion freely. He um, it, he he uh, he put out uh, several edicts to this effect. Mm. Um, he did not. Uh, well, he did favor Christianity uh, in terms of the the money that he gave out, the money that he had at his disposal. But he really did want everyone to get along. His children didn't do such a great job of that. And his son, Constantius, especially, um, levied taxes against the Jews, for example. And he tried, uh, he tried to, to, um, to kind of push paganism off the map. Theodosius, who, came, who, uh, who came, came up later in that century, in the 4th century, really did try to make Christianity the only thing in the empire. Now, they had mixed motives. They wanted the, their empire to be unified, and they did not want religion to be something that was dividing one group of people, people citizens, against another. They wanted, uh, they wanted to prevent... Pre- pre- they wanted to present a unified front against their enemies, against the barbarians, against the people beyond their borders, especially the pagan, the Persians, and uh, and the Goths and others. They wanted to be able to uh, to say that they were all practicing the same religion. Uh, sometimes they did this in a heavy-handed way, but Constantine often gets the blame for something sure. he did not do. He was respecting conscience. And he was the first in history to do that. That's it's interesting that he wanted all religion or non-religious groups to be able to to, to coexist. Uh, we, whenever we watch one of these old uh, uh, movies from that time period, we always see people being fed to the lions and people being crucified and so forth. How much of that was going on, and and how much of that is has been exaggerated as well? Well, it happened. Uh, There were periods of intense persecution where many Christians died. Perhaps thousands or tens of thousands of Christians were put to death. Uh, This this happened uh, in in um, in uh, you know with the heaviest casualties in the middle of the third century. So the years around 250, the time of Decius, the emperor, and then later on in, in, in an even bigger way in the time of Diocletian at the end of the 3rd century, the beginning of the 4th century, many Christians were tortured for their faith. Many Christians lost their jobs. Many, many Christians were killed for their faith during those two persecutions. There were other persecutions, though, and in addition to the official imperial persecutions, there were also... Um, local happenings, you might say. Uh, what what would happen is that um, is is that there would be riots, there would be mob activity directed against the Christians, and it would be tolerated by the authorities. They would look the other way. This still happens in some places on Earth where Christians are not particularly yeah. popular. The authorities will look the other way while while crimes are committed against the Christians. I can remember meeting a, a Dominican priest who lived for many years in in a in a heavily Muslim part of Pakistan, and he said that uh, that he stopped putting a lock on his door because people just broke the lock and stole his belongings. Um, he stopped fearing for his life because he just assumed that he would lose it one day um, for the for the Christian faith. Well, that's the way it was in in those those years of of early Christianity. There wasn't a steady persecution that was constantly claiming thousands of lives. But there were periods of intense persecution and what you might call sporadic persecution in between. 
But even in those times of relative peace, the Christian people were always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Mm -hmm. You know, they knew that it was always a possibility that the legal precedent was there, that the laws were on the books, and they could be enforced at any time at the will of an emperor. My guest is Mike Aquilina, the book, The Church and the Roman Empire. We're talking about reclaiming Catholic history. And we'll be back with more with Mike after these words. Support for the Storytellers is provided by CatholicBook.net, serving the Catholic community for 30 years with books, Bibles, gifts, and more. CatholicBook.net is safe, secure, and simple to use. Just a few clicks and your purchase is delivered right to your door. CatholicBook.net, for 30 years, a commitment to service. This is Tony Agnesi. Welcome back to The Storytellers. My guest today is Mike Aquilina. We're having a history lesson today, Reclaiming Catholic History, and talking about the book The Church and the Roman Empire from 301 to 490. And we're just talking uh, during the break about the book that just came out. It's The Early Church from 33 to 313. These two books part of a series of books and more to come in 2020. Um, Mike, I, I wanted to kind of zero in on the some of the councils and things because there were two i got two or three very important councils the first was the council of nicaea and then hippo and trent where where really the bible came as a result of that talk a little bit about each of those councils uh, give, give us a sense of of uh, of how that has managed to come down through history with catholics and orthodox and, and even some protestants well, uh, the, the Council of Nicaea occurred in 325, and uh, the, the circumstances were these. Um, you know, Constantine had legalized Christianity, and that was supposed to solve the problems of the Church. This is what the Catholic people had been praying for for centuries um, during, the, during the times of persecution. They got what they prayed for. They had this freedom. But what, that, what happened as a result was a lot of um, uh, tensions that had been there before, rose to the surface, and some of the more doctrinal tensions. Uh, there were these, these, um, uh, these people who had been able to fly under the radar who, um, who were teaching, teaching things that, that didn't exactly um, uh, correspond to the apostolic tradition, mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the, the Christian faith, the gospel, as it was received by the apostles from the Lord himself, the, the faith as it was passed on from the apostles to the generations afterward. And at the beginning of the 4th century, there was one of these priests. His name was Arius, and he was a priest of the Diocese of Alexandria. He was a priest in, in that Egyptian city. And, uh, and he taught against the Trinity, as we understand it. He taught against the Incarnation, as we understand it. He taught that Jesus, the, the Word, was not co-eternal with the Father. He was not co-equal with the Father. He taught that the Word... The divine word was was rather a, a creature, the, the greatest of creatures, but still just a creature. He was the first, first to be created by the Father, and all things were created through him. Still, he was not to be worshipped as God. 
Now, this does not correspond to what we what we find in the New Testament. It does not correspond to the, the life of the Church. It doesn't correspond to the baptismal formulas that were used by the early Church. It doesn't correspond to the, the Eucharistic liturgy as the Church celebrated it. In all of these things, Jesus was worshipped as God. And, um, and so... Arius was corrected by his um, his bishop Alexander, and then um, and and then he was uh, he he was unrepentant, and so so it created a crisis in the church because Arius had had gathered many founders, many followers uh, around him, and he had uh, he had come up with with very innovative ways of spreading his false doctrine. He he put it in hymns that were like advertising jing- jingles mm. and. And he taught people to sing sing these doctrines that way. Um, one of his refrains was, "There was a time when he was not." You know, he was trying to teach people that Jesus appeared in time, and so there was a time when he was not. Mm-hmm. And so he he had these songs. There was when he was not. There was when he was not, and they were catchy songs, and they spread his his um, his heresy throughout the empire. He had many followers. Again, this created a crisis. So, so the, 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 the emperor, as I said, was concerned for the unity of his people. And so he called a church council at Nicaea in 325. The bishops of the church assembled there uh, near the capital city of the empire, and uh, they determined that Arius was in the wrong. They came up with a creed, the basis uh, for the creed that we still pray at Mass every Sunday, the Nicene Creed. Mm-hmm. It's named for the Council of Nicaea. Um, and and they put this abroad to try to correct what was what was happening there. Unfortunately, it, it was kind of a stopgap, um, but it, it didn't uh, it didn't have the immediate effect that Constantine wanted or the bishops had hoped for. That, that Arianism was stubborn then and continued to spread um, for at least a century after that. After that, wow. um, uh, the church still continued to um to struggle with Christians who had um who had erring beliefs about the Trinity and the Incarnation. So that's just one of the councils. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one I deal with is the Council of Constantinople, uh, mm-hmm. where the Church faced similar controversies about the Holy Spirit. You mentioned the councils of Hippo and Carthage. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they were local councils in Africa and those were those were councils that decided on um on a canon for the New Testament, the table of contents for the New Testament, to uh, to say that these books were in and those books were out, and uh, and and uh, and they really did give us the New Testament as we um, as we know it today and as we revere it today. Mm-hmm. So you know there were a number of councils in the early church. I just mentioned a few. I could go on for oh, a long yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> it fasc- fascinating, fascinating. Uh, the um, some of the uh, myths, uh, some of the um, uh, things that you talk about uh, in each of the chapters uh, uh, really uh, were, were of interest to me, like um, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist uh, was not mentioned in any of these very early uh, councils, and that uh, the Pope's authority wasn't established till later, and, uh, and some of these things that really... Um, uh, I, I can see get getting passed along as well, and and create confusion among Catholics. Yeah, yeah. I want to make clear that those things are misconceptions. Yes, yeah. Excuse about me. The yeah. Church, mm-hmm. Because the um, the the doctrine of the real presence is is there in the writings of the earliest church fathers. Mm-hmm. We find it in Ignatius of Antioch, who died as an old man in 107 A.D. Mm-hmm. So he is a contemporary of the apostles, and he wrote 
about the Eucharist as the flesh of Jesus Christ and the blood of God. And mm-hmm. that's, again, 107 AD. But we also find similar testimonies in Justin Martyr, who yes. was writing a few years later, yes. Irenaeus of Lyon, who was writing just a few years later, Tertullian. So many of the fathers of the, the first century, second century, third century, uh, leading up to the time of my book, which is the fourth century. So by then, it was something that was just taken for granted. It was everywhere, and, uh, and it was a, a key part of the doctrine of the fourth century. Um, so, so all of these things uh, were established very early on. You know, the life as we live it in the Catholic Church today, you know, the, the Mass as we know it on Sunday was celebrated by the Church from, from very early on. Papal authority was recognized in the Church from very early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we developed different ways of of talking about it, but the way we lived it has been pretty much the same for two thousand years. It's amazing. Well, um, Mike, this is uh, this is fascinating, and for our listeners, uh, um, if you really want to um, get a glimpse at uh, reclaiming Catholic history, these uh, this series of books on uh, how many are in the total total series? Um, you know, Michael? I have to look because I don't remember the number <laughs> offhand, but I will tell you in a second. It's um, it's it's in the book itself. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven books seven in books. this series when it's complete. And there are two books out right now. The, fir- right. the first is uh, The Early Church, 33 to 313, and right. the one we're discussing here most of, the, uh, most of our interview, The Church and the Roman Empire from 301. That's right. Uh, we have a number of different authors taking the different periods of history. We tried to, we tried to find... Um, uh, people who could communicate very well, who could write very well, but also uh, people who had a certain expertise in that period. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Fascinating. Anybody who could write 50 books has got to, I don't know how you could could do it, but uh, Mike Aquilina is the uh, Executive Vice President of the St. Paul Center uh, for Biblical Theology, and he's a contributing editor to Angelus News. He's written a ton of books. You see him on EWTN and, and so forth. And uh, Michael, let, uh, just a you know parting uh, parting thought here as we go through some of these things. Uh, th- the book to me uh, seems like um, a really good starting point for someone like myself who has an interest uh, in church history. But but a lot of what I've read uh, in the past are just you know books by the early church fathers, and you go through them, and so you know you read uh, Justin Martyr and so forth. Um, but it doesn't kind of weave it all together. This is where I kind of find the book uh, very, very helpful as it weaves these things together for us. Was that kind of where you guys yeah. were going? I think, I think that your experience is pretty typical, and, and it's, it's what we're looking for when we look to history. We're not looking to memorize the dates like we, we, we did when we were in seventh grade mm-hmm. so that we know, where, you know what happened in 1492 and what happened in 1776. You know, when we get older, that's not what it's about for us. We want the story. We want to know about these people and what motivated them. Why did, were they able to do these heroic things or these villainous things on the other end? Why, why did it happen this way? Uh, and and what, what should we learn from it? And how did this help, us, help to make us 
what we are today, who we are today. These are the important questions for someone who's, who goes to history as an adult. Uh, you know, it, we're not studying for the test. We're studying for our lives. That's a, that's a great explanation, a very good explanation uh, of, of, you know, what it is that most people, most older people are seeking is to know for, know the story from where we came and, and how we got there. And uh, this book and this series of books is uh, is. Uh, going to do that for us and so I, I highly recommend you get a chance to pick up a copy of the church in the roman empire it is published by ave maria press and uh, is available where all good catholic books are sold and it's also available online at all of the normal places michael this has been a a, a great experience for me thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us on the storytellers Thanks again for having me, Tony. And that's our show for today. If you miss part of the program, the show will be available immediately at thestorytellersradio.com and wherever you get your podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And later this week, the show will be on the Catholic podcasting site, breadboxmedia.com. Well, this is Tony Agnesi inviting you to join me again next time for the next edition of The Storytellers. God bless. you've enjoyed today's edition of the storytellers with tony agnesi a production of the living bread radio network in canton ohio to learn more about today's storyteller go to thestorytellersradio.com there you can subscribe to the podcast and hear all of our past shows and join us again next week at this same time for the storytellers with tony agnesi Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... It's so much more than just a profile picture. At Catholic Singles, our platform offers you many opportunities to get to know the person behind the picture. Sign up today at catholicsingles.com. Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at caneford.com.